Hello, I'm Dr. Roger Henderson. I'm a GP in Dumfries and Galloway, and I also co-host the GP Notebook study groups. Welcome to this GP Notebook podcast, where we discuss bite-sized topics aimed at all of us working in primary care. Now, you can find us on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. So do please follow us to receive notifications about new episodes, and if you like what you hear and we hope you do, please consider leaving a review to help other listeners find us. You can also follow us on Twitter at GP Notebook for more information about new podcast episodes and study groups, and you can follow me there too at Roger the Doctor. Finally, you can visit gpnotebookpodcast.com for podcast episode show notes, and gpnotebookeducation.com to find out more about upcoming study group meetings. Now, in this episode, I'm going to be discussing the optimal use of tests of inflammatory markers. We all request inflammatory markers on a regular basis with our patients. But there is good evidence that many of these are not only not needed, but may cause significant confusion when the results come through. There is long-term evidence over the years that the use of inflammatory marker testing is rising, particularly with C-reactive protein. So I thought it might be helpful to us to understand the primary uses of the different tests that we tend to use as inflammatory marker tests. Now, mainly, I'm going to be concentrating on ESR and CRP levels, but also I'm going to be thinking about plasma viscosity, almost in passing, because those are the three ones that we tend to request when we are requesting inflammatory markers. Why do we do that? Well, they can give a good measure of someone's acute phase inflammatory response. However, and this is a key point about all inflammatory marker testing, I think, their lack of specificity can make their interpretation occasionally difficult. So, Although they're obviously useful for detecting acute inflammation and for ruling out specific conditions, personally, I often try and avoid using them as general diagnostic tools. So, if we're thinking of ESR, CRP, and sometimes plasma viscosity, there are perhaps three main situations, in my experience, where an inflammatory response is activated. The most obvious, perhaps, is infection. Then we have certain specific types, but not all, cancers. And then we can look at autoimmune disease. So other potential causes of elevated inflammatory markers would be things like acute tissue damage, physical injury, and acute active phases of chronic inflammation or flares of chronic <clears throat> inflammatory processes. So first of all, I'd like to turn to the ESR, erythrocyte sedimentation rate. And without wanting to go back to medical school, I think it is worth just reminding us what the ESR actually involves. So it's the rate at which red blood cells fall in a standardized tube. And that in turn is influenced by the extent to which certain proteins are present in the blood. And the lab will measure the ESR by calculating the distance 
in millimetres travelled in 60 minutes by erythrocytes that settle in anticoagulated blood under gravity. So if that concentration of proteins in the blood increases, such as when you get, for example, active proteins induced by inflammatory or infective conditions, then red blood cells form distinctive stacks where the cells clump together, almost like coins. And you may remember these are called rouleau. And these rouleaux then in turn make red blood cells fall at a faster rate than if they remained separate. It's almost like a clump of coins falling collectively rather than lighter coins falling individually. I've always sort of thought of it that way. Now that in turn indicates the presence of an active or inflammatory condition. Now although we look at ESR very commonly, um, in my opinion, it's perhaps the least specific inflammatory marker there is compared to things like CRP and plasma viscosity because the age of the patient can affect it, the sex of the patient can affect it, and lifestyle can affect it, such as levels of alcohol intake and degrees of exercise taken. There may also be other factors such as high blood pressure which can influence it. So ESR testing is perhaps not necessary in every situation, but for me, it can be a useful indicator in conditions such as uh, a PMR, polymyalgia rheumatica, or temporal arteritis. And also, obviously, we have to think about these days, it's very reproducible and it's extremely cheap. What are the normal levels of ESR? These do vary. So I'm going to start with children, and you should not ideally be seeing an ESR level over 10 in children. If you're seeing increased levels, certainly over 10 and certainly over 20 in children, that needs to be further investigated. So in younger men, by which I mean under the age of 50, I tend to look at normal results of being 15 or lower. Over the age of 50, that can creep up to 20 or lower. In women, you can give yourself a little bit more lee room. So under 50, a normal ESR can be seen as 20 or lower. And over the age of 50, 30 or lower. Also, don't forget that medication may also influence ESR levels. And I'm thinking of things like the contraceptive pill and theophylline. But others, such as commonly used steroids and aspirin, may actually decrease the level of ESR. So you have to be careful about the medication that a patient with a slightly abnormal ESR level is taking and think about those. Possible causes of, an, of a high ESR are legion. I have to say very high levels of ESR usually have obvious causes and tend to confirm what we've been thinking about when we've ordered the test in the first place. But common ones we'd see in our practice across the board, you're thinking of um, cancers, Crohn's, inflammatory bowel disease, even diabetes, infections, some heart and kidney diseases, rheumatoid, SLE, the list is almost endless. Um, but it's important to point out that there are no standard ranges for ESR measurements. Your local hospital may have different guidelines to neighboring ones, and normal levels do vary by age and sex. These are not absolute, these are guideline tests. The same principles really apply to C-reactive protein. 
This is, was first discovered almost 100 years ago, and it's called CRP because it reacts with the C-carbohydrate antigen of the capsule of strep pneumonia. It's synthesized by the liver, and it's induced by interleukin-6. Now, this is produced during the acute phase of inflammation or an infection, okay? So, in many situations, CRP testing is much better than ESRs. If CRP levels are persistently elevated, the cause can be chronic inflammation. I'm thinking of things like hepatitis or bronchitis or chronic inflammation, such as rheumatoid. Also, compared to ESR, CRP tends not to be elevated in viral infections, things like leukemia or lymphoma, or some connective tissue diseases. And so it's very useful in, in patients with those uh, conditions to monitor bacterial infections. If you're deciding whether someone with those conditions has a bacterial infection, a CRP test is better than an ESR. Again, if we look at typical CRP ranges, under three, pretty much everyone would consider that to be normal. From three to 10, that can be seen as borderline normal or a very minor elevation. And lifestyle changes can significantly affect these. Personally, under 10, I tend not to worry. Things like obesity, the common cold, cigarette smoking, even a sedentary lifestyle can impact CRP to that level. 10 to 100 is said to be moderate elevation. Now, that always has surprised me because when I'm getting uh, CRP levels heading towards 100, I start to get alarm bells going off. But this is just seen as moderate elevation where you have systemic inflammation. But that obviously can include malignancies. But rheumatoid, SLE and other autoimmune diseases... Even an MI could push the CRP up towards 100, and obviously things like bronchitis, and especially things like pancreatitis, can also do the same. When you're pushing above 100, that is definitely a marked elevation of a CRP, and I'm personally thinking of things like a significant bacterial infection, a major viral infection, and obviously things like vasculitis as well. Obviously, major trauma would do that, but that would be self-evident. I can't remember the last time I saw a level over 500, but that does occur, and that is highly elevated, and you're looking at very, very significant acute bacterial infections at that point. Now, if you're looking at plasma viscosity, and I have to say this is not a test I would routinely be considering, this measures the thickness of a person's blood plasma. And that, in turn, is primarily dependent on the concentration of things like fibrinogen, immunoglobulins, and general plasma proteins in their blood. Now, those proteins can increase and thicken for various reasons, but specifically things like inflammatory disease, neoplasms, and infection. But the plus point, from my point of view, compared to an ESR test, for example, is this reading is not affected by age, it is not affected by sex. However, it again is not perfect because obesity can raise the PV, okay? 
And but because it's more technically challenging to do a PV test, certain laboratories, and it may be the same in your case where you are, may not offer it. And so this is why it is not something that would be routinely done. As a general point, <clears throat> if it is, the normal adult range would be about 1.5 to about 1.7, 1.75. Up to 1.8 is probably equivocal and advisable to repeat. 1.8 to 2 would suggest a chronic condition. 2 to 2.3 would be suggestive of an acute condition. One of the reasons I can do uh, a PV would be if I was considering someone with a diagnosis of possible myeloma. Because if you've got a PV level of 2.3 or more, that tends to be highly suggestive of myeloma. And I think that is a very useful thing uh, to do a PV test for if it's available in your particular locale. So inflammatory markers are not perfect. And I think that any abnormal results, and this is a the really key take-home point to make here, have to be viewed in the context of the clinical findings and should be and should not be diagnosed on diagnostic on their own count. What they should do is lead us towards further investigations and drilling down a particular diagnostic pathway that we feel is appropriate, either in primary or secondary care. So as general points that I've learned over the years about inflammatory marker tests, firstly, remember that tests for inflammatory markers are often requested unnecessarily, although their use in primary care does appear to be increasing. Normal levels of inflammatory markers can be useful in ruling out some specific conditions, and I'm thinking of things like giant cell arteritis, myeloma, PMR, and infections of hip revisions here. They're often most helpful when looking to detect inflammation to confirm an already suspected disease process rather than using them as a scattershot approach. And also always remember that raised levels of inflammatory markers may be found in multiple conditions, particularly infections and some cancers. And in these cases, this can increase diagnostic confidence, but always remember that more information should be obtained to fully confirm a diagnosis. They're too non-specific in my experience to be a useful tool for diagnosing serious underlying diseases alone. And so we should be rarely using those in a situation like that. If you find an unexpected or an incidental finding of a raised inflammatory marker, and if your history and examination doesn't suggest a cause in your patient, then it's entirely reasonable to wait and see if symptoms develop. On the other hand, if levels are markedly raised, then the likelihood of disease is much higher. But again, history, examination and focused investigations are still required to establish a diagnosis. Using multiple inflammatory markers simultaneously does not increase the ability to rule out disease. And so I always think these should generally be avoided. And remember too, that ESR is typically considered the least specific inflammatory marker. CRP testing does have marginally superior diagnostic accuracy for infections. It's equivalent for autoimmune conditions and cancers. And so I always think this should be the first line test. 
and levels of CRP typically rise earlier in the course of an infection than other inflammatory markers. The other plus point about CRP levels is they tend not to elevate significantly with viral infections, with leukemias and connective tissue diseases. Plasma viscosity testing is often a more reliable marker than ESR as it's not affected by age or sex. The downside to PV testing is it may be impacted by obesity and not all local laboratories may offer it as a service. So I do hope that you found that podcast helpful and you've had a look at our show notes that accompany this episode at gpnotebookpodcast.com. If you have, we'd be very grateful if you consider following the podcast and leaving us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Do feel free to get in touch via social media at gpnotebook or email support at gpnotebook.com if you have any questions, comments or ideas for future podcasts. You should also visit us at gpnotebookeducation.com to register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups and download free resources and shortcuts to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. But in the meantime, thank you for listening, and until the next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.